Well, we turn now to the art of protest. Uh, TV Reed is the author of The Art of Protest, which takes a look at, uh, takes a kaleidoscopic look, if you will, at art and cultural expression to reveal how activism continues to remake our world. Uh, TV Reed is the director of American Studies and professor of English at Washington State University. Uh, in addition to the Art of Protest, which is published on University of Minnesota Press, he is the author of Fifteen Jugglers, Five Believers, Literary Politics, and the Poetics of American Social Movements. And uh, TV Reed joins us this morning on Justice or Just Us. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for being here. Can you hear me okay with my laryngitis? I'm hearing you pretty well. It's a little static, but uh, that's probably, um, I think I can work through that. Well, thank you so much. How is the weather up in uh, Washington State? Well, actually, we had a snowstorm this morning, so uh, we're, uh, we're going backwards. We had spring, and now we're going back into winter, so it's a little crazy right now. Well, I, uh, I want to compliment you on uh, your book. It is uh, incredibly comprehensive, um, and, and it's, it's an incredibly unique uh, thesis, which I want to get to in a minute. Why don't you begin by telling our listeners the, uh, the impetus for the book, The Art of Protest? Sure. The book really comes out of two different streams of interest of mine. One is the fact that for more than 30 years I've been a political activist. I've been involved in every progressive movement practically over that period of time, and I wanted to write a book that was for activists that would talk about the ways in which art and cultural forms are really important to movements. On the other side, I've read lots and lots of social movement theory and social movement analysis from social scientists, and then almost inevitably and invariably uh, downplays the role of culture. And again, both my experience and my own uh, training as a, as a humanist scholar, uh, cultural studies scholar, told me that's wrong, that really culture is extremely important. So what I wanted to do was to write an overview of social movements from the civil rights era right up to the present uh, that would chapter by chapter look at different art forms, cultural forms, and how they have been deployed by movements successfully over those, you know, roughly half century of, of progressive social movements. And the idea was that each chapter would have a different art form or cultural form and a different movement. So, for example, I talk about the role of music in the civil rights movement, uh, drama in the black power movement, poetry in the women's movement, um, graphic arts in AIDS activism, and so forth, murals in the Chicano movement. So matching each chapter with one movement and one art form allowed me to think about what can each different kind of art or cultural form do for a movement, and also um, talk about the movement themselves, introduce the movements through a more vital form than the typical this happened, that happened historical approach or the kind of structural approach of sociologists, which just talks about networks and forces and, and really doesn't kind of get at the, the dimension, the feel, the experience of being part of movement. Was there any particular... Uh historical event or movement that you, you sat down and said, okay, now is the time I really need to do this? Or was it simply uh, a, a convenience in where you were academically that you were able to take the time and write this? The book took a long time. It was, it was more than 10 years in the making, and partly because I'm dealing with you know, 10 different movements, but also because um, I really wanted to get it right. I wanted, and the difficult task of writing to both a, uh, an activist audience and try to also influence uh, academic theory was a, was a tough one to try to balance those two things out. I wanted the book to be accessible to lots and lots of people who don't 
uh, care about academic niceties, but I also want to affect the social theorists who, I think, again, have ignored a major dimension of social change by downplaying the role of culture. So it took a long time to write to get that balance, I think. If, if I may, uh, the, your book title is somewhat of a misnomer, and I don't mean that as a criticism, uh, but it's rather more of a compliment, but when one sees the, uh, the book jacket, uh, you know, the art of protest, one immediately thinks that it's a book that should be in maybe the art section of a library, when, when really, when you use the word art, you're, you're almost referring more to culture, which I think is the, the subtitle uh, of your book, and in fact, it seems that your thesis is that mass movements prove successful when they could convert movement politics into cultural politics. Could you elaborate a bit on the importance of culture and how that fits into your broader thesis? Sure. I mean, the title, of course, is something I didn't have complete control over the press, and I negotiated back and forth about that. But the subtitle is is uh, culture uh, and, and activism, and I think that's really what the book is about. Um, and I think it's really important to realize that I'm, when I do use the phrase, the art of protest, I'm talking about protest itself as an art form. And by that I mean a strategically thought out um, and aesthetically powerful form. That is, I, real, I recognize, as again, not enough people I think do when they talk about movements, that culture is always present in movements. It's always there as a resource. And the, the art of re using that, that resource, of bringing forth the power of song, the power of music, uh, is really a strategic part of movement activism. So that's what the, that's what the thesis is. That, for example, in the civil rights movement, um, I argue that black church culture and black musical culture are two of the most powerful forms through which black Americans have survived the horrors of slavery and segregation and Jim Crow life. Uh, and they, if they were to invent a new cultural form out of nothing, it would have been very hard to bring thousands and thousands of people into a radically new phase of black activism in the, in the 50s and 60s. What they did instead was to build on existing cultural forms in the black community, through the black church, through black music, uh, and take those existing forms and put a radically new content into them. And that, in some ways, is the, is the argument of the entire book, that what culture does is it provides you a, an already a network of people, a set of skills, beliefs, values. If you can use those, those existing networks and transform them by moving them in a more radical direction, you're much more likely to be successful in mobilizing people than if you try to uh, simply ignore their cultural ground or to invent something out of nothing. And it's very hard to invent a culture. Culture is deeply rooted in every aspect of who we are, how we think, how we, particularly how we feel. Uh, and so if you can build on those feelings but then move them in new directions, you have an incredibly powerful um, political tool, and that's what the book is trying to show, how different movements have mobilized existing cultural forms, transformed them into more ra in more radical directions, more progressive directions, and use that as a base for their activities. I, I find that a, a very interesting uh, thesis. Uh, about a year or two ago, I had an opportunity to interview uh, two Canadian scholars, and uh, I'm trying to get their specific names, but the name of their book, uh, here it is, the name of their book is uh, Nation of Rebels, Why Counterculture Became Consumer Culture, uh -huh. and it's by Joseph Heath and Andrew Potter, and I don't know if you're familiar with that work. 
I'm familiar with the argument, yeah. And basically their argument is that con contemporary activism is so concerned about maintaining counterculture status that they never allow their politics to penetrate mainstream culture. And it seems that your thesis kind of, uh, kind of flies in the face of that because you're suggesting that the, the movements that are truly successful are those that have been able to convert uh, radical culture or, or mass movement culture into something that is more mainstream. Uh, is that a fair characterization? Well, yes and no. Um, my, my argument is that there's always pressure on the one side to co-opt um, radical movement cultures uh, and make them more mainstream in a way that, that can be um, defusing, that is, can take the power out of them. Um, but it's also, I think, the case that uh, movements almost never get credit for the incredible cultural change that they bring. Let me give you an example from the, from the Black Power Movement. Um, my second chapter is called Scenarios for Revolution, the Drama of the Black Panthers. And what I do there is I, make, I draw a parallel between um, the rising black arts movement, the black theater movement, people like Amiri Baraka, uh, Ed Bullens, and what the Panthers are doing. What the Panthers were doing was projecting a new identity out into the world in the form of their, you know, incredibly hip, cool-looking, um, powerful, uh, you know, very, very uh, wild and strong-looking black men and women. And that image um, was incredibly widespread around around the country and around the world. In fact, Angela Davis was in Germany studying philosophy. She saw in the paper pictures of these new Black Panthers marching on the on the on the state house in Sacramento, and uh, Ronald Reagan, the then governor of California, literally running away from the scene of armed Black Panthers walking into the state house to protest the um, you know actually they were doing a kind of NRA-ish protest of, of attempt to control uh, weapons in the Black community. But what that image did, Angela Davis saw that image in the paper and came, knew there was something new going on in America, some kind of new black person emerging. And what the Panthers did, apart from all of their you know, direct political organizing, which was extremely important in the community, uh, whether it be breakfast programs, health programs for the indigent and so forth, what they did was they projected this image of power. Black power was always about image in a very strong and meaningful sense. And millions of black Americans, I would argue, had their identity transformed by this powerful, dramatic enactment of encounters between the Panthers and the police, Panthers and other, other government authorities. Uh, and that, that transformed a really very small kind of cultish um, you know, black arts movement into a massively visible uh, picture of new people, new kind of identities that I would say spread out to the whole of America and thousands and thousands of people uh, had their identities deeply transformed by those those images. So on the one hand, you had a small culture being expanded into a much larger one. That's a kind of mainstreaming, but it was a radical mainstreaming. At the other side of it is very soon after that, you have the rise of a kind of radical chic where you know everybody's suddenly wearing afros and dashikis, and the political content is taken away, uh, and all you have left is the imagery. So there's always this play between um, mainstreaming as a positive expansion of your political power and the co-optation of that power. But activists, I think, are too quick to say, oh, yeah, well, anytime you go mainstream, you have, 
you know, lost the message, lost the power, that's a self-defeating cycle where you're stuck in your little tiny subculture. Um, and the only way that you can continue to have a mainstreaming process and effectiveness is to keep raising the, the direct political message in the context of your cultural struggle. You've got to have both going on. Yeah, and, and in case I mischaracterized their book, I think that that is their point. And so I think that they actually share your perspective but they they argue you know that it's unfortunate that uh, those in in uh, kind of uh, counterculture movements don't recognize that they're not going to achieve their political goals without that kind of penetration that you talk about. But it isn't co-optation because, as you say, there's still that radical chic uh, involved. Well, co-optation goes both ways. That's my point. That when a, when a culture uh, embraces aspects of a of a social movement culture, um, on the one hand, it yes, it can be. Water, it almost always is watered down. At the same time, it's a, it's a, it can be a major victory. Um, and again, I think that, that, that millions and millions of black people's lives were moved a step away from the impact of, of white supremacy by the, the, uh, the actions and the images of the Panthers. And that's not a small thing. It's true they didn't exactly bring about the revolution. Um, but on the other hand, uh, they, they did some very profound changes in attitudes that became a base for all kinds of political power uh, in, across the country in a variety of ways. It take exam, example of the, of the use of music in the civil rights movement. Um, it's the powerful subcultural force of black church music um, was spread out across the whole country and around the world. I mean, you know, they're still singing, let us, you know, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we shall overcome all over the world in protest movements. That very small base Southern black culture um, had an incredible impact, and it had an impact because those existing forms could be filled with new content, and that means that the the, uh, the power of freedom songs drew upon the power of of the slave songs, that drew on the, the power of, of music as a force that um, impacted thousands and thousands of people in a very direct way. They could make that connection between the past and the new radical struggle. And that was taking, a, a, as you, were, you want to call it that, a counterculture and making it a, a much wider culture in the black community. I want to remind listeners, they're in tune to KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with... Uh, T.V. Reed. He is the author of The Art of Protest, Culture and Activism from the Civil Rights Movement to the Streets of Seattle. Well, let's explore some of these case studies a little bit more. I know you've uh, you've already hinted at the role of uh, music in the civil rights movement. One of the things that I, I really found interesting was your uh, your discussion, uh, your play on words, if you will, with uh, liberation musicology, uh, you know, kind of juxtaposing that with liberation theology. And I found it very interesting uh, that you suggested that sermons were were often code for uh, you know for civil rights movements and that that transferred into uh, the gospel and then the song. So, if you could talk a bit more about uh, the the intersection of church and music and the movement, I think uh, listeners uh, might might learn something really interesting about that because we we typically ignore the role of the 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 music in the church as transferring over. Sure. Um, the best civil rights activists could give a series, could lead a series of songs uh, in the church or out, or more importantly, out on the on the demonstration line uh, that were in fact a kind of um, 
ideological message. They could move through a series of songs that could tell a story of where the movement was, where the movement was going, that could change the mood of the demonstration from you know, uh, meditative to, to confrontative or vice versa. They used music as an incredibly important ideological weapon, and the reason that could be so effective was that most of the people uh, involved had grown up on this music, and they had a kind of very deep connection to it, so that when you put radical content into a conservative, you know, traditional form, uh, it's an easier transition. It's much more likely to be effective in reaching people than if you suddenly, you know, again, invent a new, a new genre. Um, that has no connection to people's past. And the best liberation musicologists, as I call them, song leaders like uh, Bernice Johnson, Regan, uh, the, the, you know, the, the SNCC singers and so forth, what they could do was, was um, you know, in, in effect, turn songs into um, ideological um, lectures. They, could, they basically could lecture um, about where the movement was, where it needed to go through song. And again, much more exciting than hearing, you know, some boring old professor talk about this kind of stuff. The deep level of connection was what made it powerful for, for uh, the movement and made it possible to spread beyond uh, you know, a small coterie of activists. And it's also important to realize in most of these movements, I think a lot of young people today assume that, that it was somehow easier to be an activist in the 60s because thousands and millions of people were, were out in the streets. Well, in fact, it always was a relatively small number of very committed activists who really were the catalyst. And in the civil rights movement, no, no, you know, no less so. There were a few hundred really dedicated SNCC activists that were the, the network upon which these larger uh, you know, actions could take place. And I want to make one uh, really crucial point here, because I'm talking a lot about drama and, and uh, all of the you know, flashy stuff that's, that I'm, I'm arguing can be really important. But the book is dedicated to people like Bernice Johnson, Regan, and Ella Baker, and Ella Baker made an incredibly important distinction between mobilizing people and organizing them. Mobilizing them is getting them out there in the streets, getting them, you know, excited. And organizing is the tough day-to-day -to -day activity that involves empowering people to take action themselves, not be led by a flashy leader or by, a, you know, uh, a major, uh, you know, external event, but learning within their own being to be powerful. And that's also a role that music could play. Music could bring people to their own sense of power, their own sense that they didn't have to wait for some leader to come along. And I think that the, that the distinction between mobilizing folks, which was what Martin Luther King could do, and actually organizing them, uh, which is what people like Ella Baker did, go into people's homes, go into their churches, go into their schools, and get them to feel their own power, get them to take action on their own, uh, get them to have that real deep sense of, of democratic empowerment. That's, that's, that's really the, you know, the crucial balance between uh, you know, the, the flashy stuff and the day-to-day and the -day stuff that is absolutely essential and tends to fall upon a relatively small number of really deep and I'm glad you made that point because when, uh, particularly with, with more recent movements, which we'll get into, where there's a lot of humor involved, uh, and a lot of the, uh, the guerrilla theater or the, uh, the culture jamming or whatever terms we want to use, it, it, it takes away the, uh, the, the, the dryness, as you say, of the, the, the professor simply lecturing. But at the same time, that's just the surface of a lot of organizing. And uh, I do like the fact that at the very beginning of your book, you try to dispel a whole bunch of myths and make that clarification between uh, mobilizing, which involves numbers, and organizing, which involves uh, 
you know, getting the dirt underneath your fingernails and the, the long nitty-gritty and, and uh, kind of stuff that isn't always as rewarding as uh, the, uh, the flashy drama. Right. Uh, you do juxtapose, it's interesting, when you look at uh, the, uh, the Freedom Songs, which uh, is the first chapter, and then the, uh, the chapter on the Black Panthers and uh, Black Nationalism, uh, the Civil Rights Movement uh, used music, and uh, you talk about, as we've mentioned, the, the black nationalism uh, using more, more theater and uh, dress and manners and so forth. Talk about that distinction a bit. Right. Well, again, and, and because I'm trying in each chapter to work on a different aspect, I don't mean to imply that there was, you know, no music in the civil rights movement, no music in the Black Panthers, and and no theater in the in the civil rights movement. There were, in fact, um, uh, both those things going on in each movement. In fact, um, R and B music, soul music was extremely important to the Black Panthers. People don't even know this. Most people don't know this, but the Black Panthers actually put out a record <laughs> of R and B songs and soul songs. Uh, there was there was it was a soundtrack to the Black Power movement, um, and so there was, in fact. There is continuity there. But, yeah, movements tend to find a form that works best for them. And uh, in the case, again, this taking another, another example, uh, the Chicano movement, uh, murals were already part of the community. There were a lot of many buildings in the community had, uh, you know, essentially unpolitical um, murals all over their, all over the sides of the buildings. So when the Chicano movement came along and began putting Che Guevara as opposed to some, you know, uh, anonymous figure on the wall, it had a sense of kind of familiarity. And so, again, a case where a relatively conservative existing form could have radical content put in, it made it more accessible to more people than if it just, again, if they try to invent something new. Now, in the case of the Panthers, um, there is a high level of performance, uh, performativity, as the academics call it, in the black community. Lots of, lots of people, you know, um, play on and use uh, style as a major form of expression, much more so than in many other communities. So the Panthers were deeply, you know, aware of this, particularly in black street culture. Uh, the performance of, of a certain style of cool was very important to both black masculinity and, in a different way, black femininity. So they took that existing kind of street culture and they added a radical political content again. So it's a, it's a way of, it's not, it's a, and it, it's different than the way that it was done in the civil rights movement, but it's the same basic structure of taking something that already exists and expanding it, tweaking it, adding new content, and expanding it out to more people. And again, that's the opposite in, in some sense of, of kind of countercultural, um, uh, you know, nesting in, in your safe zone. It's taking something and putting it out to a, a new audience, a wider audience. And that's a different kind of mainstreaming than simply co-optation, uh, you know, the kind of commodification of dissent that Thomas Frank talks about and it's you know, again, a common a common problem. It's gotten worse over the years. We may talk about that later. But uh, so yeah, there's a there's a there's an affinity. There tends to be an affinity with one cultural form and a movement. But it's also movements usually use multiple forms of culture as well as uh, you know um, other forms of act, activist power than than culture. When you talk about the need to convert movement politics into cultural politics. I think the case study of ACT UP uh, most clearly illustrates uh, 
how important it is to uh, to make that that conversion or transformation. Uh, certainly, uh, with with AIDS in the 1980s, you had uh, so many uh, myths, so many fears, so much homophobia, and yet ACT UP was able to do just amazing things with with uh, so many different mediums and uh, humor. Talk about uh, how ACT UP was able to really transform the way uh, the American public thought about AIDS. Yeah, well, again, um, a different historical moment and a different cultural moment. Uh, most of the, the original and most powerful ACT UP actions uh, tend to be in New York City, which is the center of American capitalism, American um, mass media, and American advertising. And many of the people involved in ACT UP were themselves uh, media professionals and artists. So they, their culture, in some sense, gave them the skills to manipulate the very kind of, of consumer culture that was part of the problem. And again, rather than saying, oh, well, because we know that advertising is primarily used to uh, you know, do terrible things, to, to drive people into debt and then waste their time on, on trivialities, um, these activists said, hey, wait a minute, we can turn act activism, uh, turn advertising into activism. And so they used the kind of sloganeering, um, you know, sound bite quality of much of what goes on in consumer culture, and they turned it into uh, a resource for overcoming homophobia, racism, sexism, class uh, oppression that was part of the whole um, AIDS epidemic of signification, as I call it. And what they did was they used these forms that were very familiar to folks. I mean, you know, they actually used the sides of buses. They used, uh, you know, any, any, any venue where advertising took place. They would take it over through their very creative, uh, oftentimes very humorous, play on words, play on imagery. Uh, and they would use their skills, and rather than sort of deny them and say, oh, we'll, just, we'll, we'll totally stay away from consumer culture, they turned it around, and they turned it into an activist culture. And they particularly went after every single level of the problem. Beginning with science, they, they attacked the, you know, the ways in which science had been politicized by the Reagan administration uh, to, to take money and, and, uh, and resources away from AIDS activism, from AIDS research. Um, they attacked the political level. They attacked the media. Uh, they, wrote, they put out a, a piece called the New York Crimes, uh, critiquing the way that the New York Times had covered or really failed to cover the AIDS crisis. Uh, they used every single genre of, of, uh, of popular culture and mainstream media culture and turned it to their interests, turned it to their to their to their virtues of, of, of social movement activism. And uh, they did it in a way that was again often um, striking visually, uh, striking in terms of its emotional impact, very very in your face kind of stuff. And they made it ubiquitous by by putting it in just the right venues uh, where people would see it, where people would encounter it. They took it in people's lives. They made stickers that could be put in any place in the, you know, in 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 your life, so that you are going to be able to have to have to face it. A uh, very creative, very very smart, and again, drawing upon the, the peculiar social base. Most movements um, of progressive nature in the U.S. have not had a really strong upper middle class professional base. Um, AIDS activists had that, and again, rather than saying, "Oh, well, this is just a stupid middle class movement," um, they the thing that I argue for is that they they use that to move out, to use those professional middle class skills to move out and deal under pressure from other folks with issues of racism and so forth that were equally important to the homophobia that were kind of the, the issue for the core of the early ACT UP activists. 
We're speaking with T.V. Reed. He's the author of The Art of Protest, Culture and Activism from the Civil Rights Movement to the Streets of Seattle. Well, let us move to the present day so we could uh, have enough time to tackle all that we want to. Uh, let's start with Seattle and then maybe look at the current uh, anti-war, pro-peace movement. Um, a lot of people argue that uh, the globalization movement was brought to a grinding halt because of the events of uh, September 11th, or that maybe one movement, uh, that the anti-war movement evolved out of the, the Seattle movement. But uh, what is your assessment of activism today and its uh, awareness of your thesis, the need to uh, use existing cultural expressions to try to... Uh, penetrate the mainstream politics. Yeah. Well, the last chapter of the book uh, does deal with the rise of the uh, global justice movement and, and the Seattle events as sort of a catalyst for that. One thing I try to make in that chapter is to remind people that all throughout our history, um, Amer so-called American social movements have actually been international. Again, going way back to the civil rights movement as a starting point, um, that activism was was rooted in uh, connections to, say, you know, Gandhi's movement in India and so forth, very much uh, uh, impacted by colonialism in Africa and the, the African liberation movements of the 50s and 60s. There always has been um, an international element to, uh, to U.S. political activism. But the, the globalization protests uh, in Seattle brought that to a new level of awareness, I think, and not only did it bring activists from all over the world to the U.S., but more importantly, it showed that you cannot divorce uh, U.S. conditions, U.S. activist struggles from global ones. And the other part of that um, conjunction at that, at that particular historical moment, of course, was the rise of the Internet, which allowed activists to have far more uh, easy and cheap communication across thousands and thousands of miles. And again, in a globalized economy, uh, you must also have globalized resistance. And what I think came out of the Seattle protests was a, hopefully a more humble sense among American activists that they were a small part of a much wider global network, and that in some ways um, it would be a contradiction for the U.S. to lead a uh, global resistance movement, that in fact, uh, since American, the American empire was the largest part of the problem, uh, that U.S. activists should be somewhat uh, modest and humble in, in following activists around the world who were uh, really the, the, the main source of this movement. So I think some lessons were learned from this process and some were not. Uh, there are some who I think um, use the Internet to mobilize, but not so much to, to organize. Again, they rely too much on, on just networks of people and, 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 and a lot of relatively passive kinds of organizing without um, doing that grassroots day-to-day -day work that's also really important. The other part that comes out of this, and you're right that 9-11 was a major uh, transformative moment and a, and a major problem for activists in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, it took, it's taken years, I think, to overcome that. But on the other side of it, uh, the largest anti-war protest in history happened on the edge of the, the, uh, the Iraq invasion. And that's for those who say, oh, well, activism really only happened in the 60s or that's the only time it was, you know, that's just nonsense. The largest, you know, single day of activism in, in, uh, in history, probably 15 to 20 million people around the world, again, in unimaginably uh, uh, complex 
interaction connection that only made possible by the internet. But again, it's really out there in the streets that, that the impact was made. And you're referring to just for listeners for uh, February fifteenth, two thousand three. Exactly. Okay. Um, and again, that was but that was part of a long existing set of networks in the in the uh, global justice movement. And again, it continued on afterwards. So um, out of that out of that really important process, um, it also became clear that we were up against an unusually recalcitrant administration. I mean, throughout U.S. history, and again, U.S. history begins as a social movement. The American Revolution is what started the whole thing in America, and, and social movements have always been part of the texture of American life, not, not again just in the 60s. But one of the problems we have is that people attempt to sort of isolate activism as a kind of 60s thing. You have people in the media, obviously not you, but the other media, uh, who say things like, oh, it was a 60s-style demonstration. Again, a reducing uh, you know, political activism to a kind of style, a life choice, a lifestyle, and again, the opposite of the kind of, 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 uh, of, of talking about movement culture that, that I'm talking about. And media try to kind of, uh, I think, fend off the power of demonstrations these days by talking about it as if it were nostalgia for a different time period. Again, all American history has been uh, faced with really important demonstrations from the Boston Tea Party to the, to the uh, you know, the Seattle latte party, we might call it. Uh, and I think it's really, really, um, the, the moment right now is a very difficult one for activists because on the one hand, we've been extremely successful in the anti-war movement at one level. Uh, that is that we actually got a majority of Americans to turn against the war far quick, more quickly than during the Vietnam era. The problem, of course, is that uh, even that day when there were 15 million people in the streets, uh, George Bush said, oh, it was just a focus group, and I don't listen to focus groups. That's, an, that's, a, that's a version of an argument that was also heard back in the 60s by people like Nixon who said, oh, I was just watching a football game, so I didn't notice that there were 200,000 people marching on the Pentagon. Well, we know from um, subsequent um, you know, uh, um, documentation that that was an absolute lie, but he was deeply impacted by, this, by the anti-war movement. And the same thing is true in, in a variety of ways. The reason that we had the surge was certainly because um, the war was going to become such a huge um, um, issue that, that the Bush administration could no longer ignore the anti-war movement. So they had to create a situation where fewer American, Americans were being killed. And unfortunately, too often it's only Americans that, that Americans think about and not the, the Iraqis. Uh, that situation um, was diffused in a, in, a, in, a, in a complex way by having uh, the surge, you know, kind of downplay the, in, the number of U.S. casualties without really affecting the, you know, the larger picture. So the Bush administration has been uh, forced by the movement to change its tactics, but again, that's never the way it's discussed. Uh, there's a, generally speaking, a time lag between the efforts of a movement and the impact, and the mainstream will always deny impact of movements, and that makes it very hard for activists to believe that they're actually having an impact. It's a way of disempowering activists by pretending that they're not having an impact, when in fact, again and again, if you look through the historical record, we can see that social movements have had great impact on social policy, have changed the world, but there's always uh, a denial on the part of the mainstream. They act like, oh yeah, well, the fact that we you know, suddenly had uh, civil rights legislation wasn't because of the movement, it was just because, you know, we senators and Congress members uh, decided it was time to enact this. I mean, nonsense. It was done because of the movement. There's always denial on the part of the, those in power that they're being 
affected by, and that's again still happening today. And it's always a frustration. Uh, yes, the war is not has not ended, uh, but it's been deeply impacted by the anti-war movement. And so, then, what is in the the minute we have left? What is the uh, do you think will be one of the the legacies of the uh, the anti-war movement? I mean, you, you talked about February fifteenth. Um, what else? Well, again, I think it's really embedded in the larger um, global justice movement. I mean, the anti-war movement is really, in many ways, uh, at its core, indistinguishable from the global justice movement. And I hope the lesson there is that it, the U.S. is part of a much larger set of forces and that those forces that have, in fact, been, been disempowered in many ways by, by the presence and the power of the U.S. Uh, need to be the ones leading the movement, need to be the ones listened to, need to be the ones that, that uh, you know, are going to come up with alternatives to the the, uh, the world we're living again. If another world is possible, it's going to come out of other parts of the world more than it's going to come out of the U.S. We need humility in the face of that. We need patience, and we need to recognize that, that we have much more power than is ever going to be recognized by the, by the mainstream, and to take that seriously, keep that day-to-day organizing going on, use every form of culture and politics we can, we can find. The book is The Art of Protest, Culture and Activism from the Civil Rights Movement to the Streets of Seattle. The author is Professor T.V. Reed. Uh, certainly not enough time to cover everything that's in there, but uh, hopefully I did, uh, did your thesis some justice. Uh, Professor Reed, I want to thank you so much for joining us this morning. Sure, and again, read the book and get the rest of the story. <laughs> <laughs> thank Thanks you very much. much. Take care. All right, bye-bye.